From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. When you think of the history of turfgrass science, and specifically turfgrass pathology, there are few heads on the Mount Rushmore. Professor Joe Vargas of Michigan State University will certainly be one of those heads. Hailing from New England and the University of Rhode Island, Dr. Vargas received his graduate training at Oklahoma State and the University of Minnesota, joining the faculty at Michigan State University in 1968. That's right, 50 years ago. Dr. Vargas's legacy from C-15 bentgrass decline in Chicago in the 1980s to his position on fungicide resistance, he's never shied away from controversy. Professor Joe Vargas, thanks for joining me on Frankly Speaking, and I want to start out with your most recent honor uh, from the, the Michigan Turf Foundation. Send a note around that Michigan State University honored you with with their 50-year gold pin uh, for service. And I know, because uh, I've known you long enough and you said it earlier, um, you know, when you live long enough, you get these things. But Joe, really, uh, being a professional at the level you've operated all these years, 50 years is a big achievement. So, and, you know, for, for the people that listen, and just so you know, I, I just think this is one of the great achievements of turf grass scientists. You just don't see this kind of longevity. And I'd say too, Joe, you've managed to stay fairly relevant. So I'm going to ask you to take a look back. I mean, they gave you this pin. You must have had to say something. What do you think about when you look back over a 50-year career? You know you know what I think, and it's funny. Um, Noel Jackson, God rest his soul, one of the great people in turf, one time invited me to speak uh, at a night uh, session before the Rhode Island Turfgrass Conference. And um, he said, you know, review what you've done and, you know, make, put it together, make a presentation. And as I put it together, I realized my whole career was nothing but controversy. (laughs) 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 You know, it started, it started with, uh, anthracnose. Uh, You know, when I found anthracnose was killing annual bluegrass rather than the heat alone, I thought this is going to be great. You know, people are dumping tons of lead arsenic and calcium arsenate out on fairways and greens. They're not going to have to do that. You know, boy, they're going to be so happy. Nobody was happy. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> who's this young guy telling us it doesn't die in heat? We know for 50 years it dies in heat. You know, who is this guy? Right, oh, right, my God. Right, yeah. They wrote articles about I didn't know anything. Well, and it's funny that you bring that up in, in conjunction with Noel Jackson, because when I was in and, you know, you and I are alumnus of the University of Rhode Island. So big shout out to all our uh, Rhode Island Ram graduates. But when I took Noel Jackson's class, he taught about much of your career and controversy that you encountered. And he taught us, well, everybody thought this and Joe and in, in the case of Fusarium, Dick Smiley, you guys thought yeah. that. And you, of course, were proven right over time. And I can tell you my career has had a, a similar thing, particularly around environmental responsibility and potassium yep. nutrition and things like that. There are times when it's our job to swim against the tide. So you didn't really have a sense that was happening when it was happening? Or did each one sort of you did it? it was over with, you moved on to the next one. Cause when you look back, you did have a career where you challenged the conventional thinking. 
Yeah, and, and I hope you do take over for me. I, I've been beaten up enough. <laughs> take over, and you've certainly been beaten up enough too. But it just goes if you, you can be somebody that does nothing or you know mediocre testing the things, and you don't go anywhere. I, I don't know. I just was you know, and, and then we had the you know the C fifteen problem and that grass dying, and you know they were saying well it was leaf spot, and I remember we, we went to Butler had us. Uh, come because he had the Western Open there at the Butler National, and there was 19 of us. Why I remember that, I don't know. There were <laughs> university professors, consultants, and um, one of the funny things, one of the guys said, well, you know, we're having him put on uh, Dacanil 2787 twice a week, and it's not working, so he's got to go put it on every day. <laughs> but if you put on Dacanil 2787 twice a week, and it isn't controlling a helmet to sport him to see, Seven days isn't going to matter either, but you know. So we came back, we brought it back, and we looked at it, and you know, couldn't see any spots or anything. And finally, you know, out of frustration, we couldn't isolate a fungi. We took it down to the electron micros, electronic microscope lab, and sure enough, all the xylem vessels were filled filled with bacteria. And then you get into no bacteria don't attack turf. You know he's crazy once again. You know he doesn't know what he's talking about again. And That's right. Well, and it's funny too now, Joe, because to bring your career to the modern day, uh, this is what you're actively publishing on now, right? I saw some recent work that you and Emily yes. just did uh, looking at at jasmonic acid and salicylic acid. And I know you know early on, I would say again, you were on to the phosphite thing. Um, relative to uh, its its relationship to uh, how Aliette was working, so so certainly you had s- your hands in in the industry shifting to something that's almost a standard now. But you know, over you know when you so you just get used to sort of saying things that you think you have the data for, and over time you just develop some. Uh, tolerance for the people who have to work their way through it to understand it like you do. But in the meantime, um, you take a fair amount of baloney uh, from your colleagues in the science world. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, but, you know, the older I got, the easier it was. I remember that anthracnose thing, man, I was so frustrated. And, you know, you get, well, it's not published in the referee journals. Well, you've got to do the research. You can't just you know, make something up one day and put it in there. And, you know, and so it just goes on. But as I got older, then it became more comical, you know, black layer, and it was everything from the superintendent over watering. And, and this wasn't rocket science. It was already in the literature, you know, just had to do it in the turf system to show that it was having excess sulfur in the soil and then having it go anaerobic, which the sulfur contributed to as it went from sulfur to sulfate an oxygen molecule out of the soil. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly drew attention to that issue, and whether you had to deal with it by cutting back on your sulfur or improving the drainage in those uh, heavily yeah. surface organic layers, you know, ultimately, you know, you were, again, you know, identifying those things ahead of the curve. Now, at the same time, as you're sort of working among the industry, uh, and I know my time there was, of course, going to be your favorite time at Michigan State. But over the years, Absolutely. you've had a lot of colleagues uh, at Michigan State. And I got to speak with one of them on this program. Al Turgeon joined me back in the beginning of the year. What was it like in the early years? I mean, you you know, Dr. Beard just passed away. And I read many of the quotes that you uh, said about yeah. him and, you know, uh, the, the sort of way he was about doing things and, the, and his work ethic as well. 
Um, what has it been like? Let's talk about those early years at Michigan State with with the colleagues that you had, Beard, Reeky, I think Sherman and Turgeon were banging around back then. Yeah, and uh, Ken Payne. Right, uh, Ken Payne. Who was, he was really my mentor. He took the time to cool off a hot-headed little young guy just coming into the to the university. But what Beard did was Beard taught us we all got to work together, okay? You know, we can't go running off on our own different directions. I mean, we all got to do our research differently, but we need to do it as a team. And uh, and that's carried on to this day, as you know, when you, you were here, when, you know, we had team meetings and, uh, you know, we did field days together, we did conferences together. It wasn't like some universities, you know, where the professors seemed to get heavy ego trips, and I'm not going to mention them, but you know them too, where, you know, they even moved their plot area to a different place because they can't get along with some guy. You know, I, know, you know, yeah. I know. So you guys have avoided that for the most part uh, over the years, right? I mean, because, yeah. uh, you know, Dr. Beard took up a lot of room uh, physically and, and his yeah. presence, of course, with his mind uh, took up a lot of room. And then uh, he departed. And I think it was uh, John Kaufman after that, right? Yeah, John Kaufman after that. But, you know, the one thing about Beard, why you could never criticize him, was he did all the work. He put the turf conference on. You know, he put the field days on. And I, neither, neither Ricky and I realized how much work was involved till he left and we were stuck doing it, okay? But, you know, we appreciated him doing it, but never realized how much work was involved until he actually, you know, went to Texas a so, so when you're when you're out uh, speaking, right, and I know from working there, the alumni and the size of the program affords you, you know, you got resources to do really good work and you got a network of alumni who really believe in the work that you've done and, and the way you approach it. When you're getting criticized by colleagues uh, around the country and even companies and superintendents might be criticizing you, uh, what was Beard and the and Ricky saying to you, you know, when you're taking heat nationally? Yeah, the, the same thing, Joe, just do the research, okay? When you do the research, okay, you'll find the truth out. And, and if you're right, you publish it and it'll all go away. Uh, all of them said that to me, Beard, Ricky, and Payne. And they were right once, you know, we... That the research was necessary and got it published. You know, for the most part, went away. Obviously, nothing totally goes away, but for the most part, went away. So, how about your legacy uh, with the students? Right, of course, you've been teaching. Have you been teaching turf students for fifty years? Yep, fifty years. This is my fiftieth year. Okay, teaching. so just think about this legacy. There's probably there has to be there is there are guys who you taught who are fully retired now. Yeah. Yes, there are. <laughs> That's <laughs> so great. So, so what would you say about that? I mean, you, I know you guys actively visit them over the years, uh, the programs, uh, the, you know, the, the, the two and four year program, uh, but just over the years, the exposure that you've gotten through conferences, I know you do a lot of visiting of courses. What are you seeing? Can, can you talk about the students a little bit, your legacy from that perspective? What are you noticing about a Michigan state student that's been out uh, functioning for a while um, that maybe sets them apart from other folks that you visit when you're out there. That's a tough one, Frank. I, I, I don't, I don't really know that there's that much difference. I think even, you know, there was a school that had a habit of sending out obnoxious uh, golf course superintendents and early on he used to hear, boy, your guys are so nice, you know, they're so easy to deal with and these other people. But that's even changed as as the leadership changed at that university. I, to me, today they're all 
They're all the same. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's wonderful to go to a golf course where a student, you know, former student is because they, you know, they, I hate to use the word worship you, but you can see all the respect they've given you. And, you know, it's really, really nice mm-hmm. to see. And, uh, but, you know, some of the other places I go, I get, get that respect too from people who want my students. That's exactly right. And, of course, you know, that's respect from a, a long time of servicing them, getting out and about and, and talking about the work that you do. So then let's just talk about superintendents in general. You know, you visited superintendents in the late 60s and early 70s, and you're still yeah. visiting superintendents into the next decade of another century. So would you say things have changed dramatically across the board for superintendents? Yeah, and I, I like, you know, let me first make one remark. You know, back to the anthracnose, mm-hmm. it was really the superintendents who saved me. They heard what I said. They were tired of fairways dying and greens dying, so they went put fungicides out. And many of them said to me, why does so-and-so dislike you and say that, you know, you're crazy, that it's it's still a heat. But when I go put the stuff out there and I tell them, look at I treated the fairway, I treated the green, it doesn't die anymore on me. Anyway, so I would say the difference between the superintendent then and the superintendent now is a lot of the superintendents uh, back then weren't as well educated. There was, a, you know, especially here in Michigan, there was a couple of real legendary superintendents who had people who didn't go to college work for them and they got the, you know, the good jobs where today, these students today, you know, they got all the technical knowledge. They know how to use computers. You know, they know how to operate their irrigation systems by computers. And uh, I just think they're better educated not only in turf, but in in, uh, technology as well. And are they better communicators or were we, what was the way the superintendents reviewed in the sixties and seventies? I mean, it's not like it was the profession it is today. No, they, the fact they would show up in their work clothes and they'd work, uh, they never got into the clubhouse, you know, and today you see the superintendent, most of them that they dress in golf attire. They have lunch very often at the, you know, at the, um, clubhouse. Uh, they're all certainly always welcome in the clubhouse and that's really raised the level of the superintendents, not just some farmer who's out there, you know, mowing grass. This guy, you know, is a professional, like a better term. Yeah. Oh, no, it's definitely gone up. Let's take a break here, and we'll be back with Michigan State University Professor Joe Vargas. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. This is TurfNet Radio Network, and I'm joined today already in a wonderful conversation with my former colleague. It's pretty cool to say that, Professor Joe Vargas at Michigan State University. Uh, And we chatted about uh, sort of the broader impacts early on, Joe. Now I want to talk about some technical stuff. And it really connects the bookends of your career, right? Early on, 
you got were involved, as you said earlier, going over to Butner National and working with the Chicago superintendents. And of course, many of the folks that listen in the Midwest know that was the origin of the uh, CDGA uh, agronomy program that Randy Kane, a good old Cornell alum, was the first hire out there. That all came from that initial decline of the vegetative material uh, that we used to plant our uh, putting surface to uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s until more seeded varieties like Pencross came along. Okay, Joe, so you go to Butler, you take samples. I mean, if, if you can remember back to what the turf looked like, does it look like what Acidivorax is doing to the turf now? No, it really doesn't because, uh, first of all, it was a xanthomonas, which is a much more aggressive pathogen. And um, so that was the first thing. The second thing, every plant in that green was the same genetically as every other plant in that green. So the once it got going, it was just devastating. Where with Acidivorax, it's not as aggressive a pathogen, and uh, therefore it doesn't kill overnight the same way that uh, the uh, you know bacterial wilt xanthomonas did. But also, as you know, creeping bent grass is an open pollinated species, so not all of the plants in a, you know, excuse me, regardless of what cultivar it is, not all the plants are genetically the same because it's open pollinated. And uh, therefore, it only attacks certain parts of the green where those biotypes in there of the creeping bent grass are susceptible to it, and it kind of goes around the ones that, that aren't. And so the acidivorax not being an aggressive pathogen, it looks like from what you're publishing about now that it's very stress-related, and maybe that's why you guys have started to look at salicylic acid and jasmonic acid because maybe like the phosphites do uh, to pythiums and general disease control, um, maybe these hormones could help plants uh, defend themselves. Where are you guys heading with this work, uh, looking at trying to manage acidivorax by enhancing the sort of def- uh, defenses of the plant? Um, actually, where, where we're heading is to try to figure out mechanisms to increase, you know, jasmonic acid, and as it uh, then affects the part of the plant that produces the natural uh, fungicides, or in bactericides to, uh, you know, make the plant uh, survive without necessarily having to use uh, other uh, chemicals, you know, fungicides. Well, we don't really have many, any bactericides. No. And, and so, and so you, you now, of course, with the phosphites, and maybe you had this idea earlier, but it's certainly well established in, in plant pathology that plants do have a fair amount of innate ability uh, that even that can potentially be stimulated um, yes. to defend itself. And of course, it seems that's what phosphite, and if you follow Aliette, uh, that would be the basis of that activity, wouldn't it? Yes, correct. Yeah, that's what it does. And now, if we can just, you know, go one step further, now we're identifying the compounds that are involved in the plant's resistance and then figure out how to stimulate them and, you know, make them more. Um, in the more available in the plant to so the plant could defend itself. And so by doing that stimulating and trying to get the plant to help itself, of course, 
you know, this has been, I think the uh, Paracla-Strobin work showed that certain fungicides can do this as well. And obviously yeah. the chemical industry has been a big part of your career as a plant pathologist through the heyday and the development of chemicals making their way from ag into turf. I guess let's start. You mentioned earlier, guys used to put a fair amount of lead arsenate out there. Obviously, things have changed dramatically. Can you give me a sort of just summary of what you think has happened in the 50 years of watching chemicals develop? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, we used heavy metals to try and control fungal diseases, but they weren't very soluble and you were using an awful lot of material you know, to try and control the diseases. And obviously the direction now kind of uh, enforced by the EPA is for these low-rate uh, um, fungicides uh, that they're called, um, as they're called, low-risk yep. fungicides, and they have to be applied at less than a eighth of a pound active per acre. And, um, you know, so we're getting fungicides like that. You mentioned paraclostrobin, which turns on uh, the night, acid in the plant, which is also involved in the uh, plant defending itself from uh, pathogens. But in general, it's the fact that we've reduced the amount of material that we're actually putting into the environment. A very good thing. Yeah, and that's, again, some of the basis of other work you've done as we're wandering through your career. The development of the microorganism that was getting delivered through the Biojet system. So, you know, I was uh, a user of that technology for many, many years, both at, at Beth Page when we were working on the golf course to try to uh, reduce and, and eliminate the use of uh, pesticides on an entire golf course, the green course there. And so, um, you know, I... Oh, and I, I got experience with it at the Vineyard Golf Club uh, out in Martha's Vineyard where they bought a bunch of units and were, were putting it out. So I, I know people put it out through irrigation systems. Joe, that seems like technology that should have worked. What happened? Well, it was, it was easy. They didn't have enough volume. When the original work was done, it was done in vats that had 150 gallons. There were 150-gallon tanks. And it worked wonderful. And then for whatever reason, uh, EcoSoils decided, I, I think I know the reason, that they would put it into a 30-gallon tank. And uh, and I think it was getting it registered with the EPA. And you can, you know, they wanted to make sure there was no human pathogens being brewed up in there. But there shouldn't have been because this organism didn't grow above 37.5 degrees centigrade, which is where the human pathogens grow. Mm -hmm. But they just went ahead without, you know, they formed a, a council to advise them and then went ahead and did what they wanted to do anyway. The courses where it worked best at were, were courses that had two pumping stations and uh, they had a biojack for nine holes on one and a biojack for nine holes on the other. Mm -hmm. It'll work, but you, you can't do it with, uh, you know, a um, whatever it would be, a 100-acre golf course or 150-acre golf course with only 30 gallons uh, of bacteria. It's not going to work. You know, and, and I got to believe, uh, you know, that's why we were brewing it and then putting it in, in spray tanks every night. Now, the brewing of that organism resulted in the development of a uh, fungicidal compound. Is, is that correct? Yeah, PCA, uh, phenazine carboxylic acid. Excuse me, but nobody has gone ahead and, um, to my knowledge, actually 
developed it as a practical fungicide. So. Do you see, you know, looking forward, right? We got reduced yep. risk products. We're putting out less material. Two questions. We'll start with the, what I think the easy one is. Are you seeing new molecules being developed? No. I don't know why. Maybe it's just we've reached our limitation. I don't believe that, but no. The latest one of these SDHI fungicides, but, uh, you know, there's been things like Emerald, which is a different class of SDHI, but it's an SDHI and uh, others that are out there. Now they just got these ones that are more um, lipid-based, and so therefore you can use less, and they're just as effective. But, you know, uh, other than that, I, I don't see anything new out there. Does that concern you? Yeah, because the fungus is becoming resistant to just about everything that was out there. You know, back again, I said that, you know, rotating chemicals was not going to work. Man, did I get beat up on that. But it was so refreshing last year. I went to the Phytopath meeting, and they all agreed that rotating chemistry was not going to work. After preaching it for 30 years, you know, I got so sick of hearing uh, don't forget to practice good resistant management by rotating different chemicals. Well, if a fungus can have resistance to more than one classic chemistry, how is rotation going to prevent resistance? It can't. Sorry, didn't it get emotional? No, you <laughs> did. So I'm telling you, Joe, that is going to be the highlight of my three years of doing <laughs> Frankly speaking, because I was hoping we were going to get to this because I was aware of some of this conversation that's been going on. And I do think it is, you know, still a very tricky thing to sell uh, intuitively to a lot of people. But I will tell you, there are a lot of people practicing what I know you preach and they, you know, they get done with one chemical and they move on to another. And that seems to uh, have worked for them, oddly enough. I will say it is definitely swimming against the tide. But I guess I'm going to ask you if there's no new molecules being developed and we're developing resistance to the products we have, whether it's because we rotate or because we keep using them and eventually we reach the limitation and it doesn't appear these companies are motivated at least to develop compounds specifically for turf. I mean, do you see something like uh, the PCA compound uh, coming back into vogue, trying to formulate it for sale? Yeah, it, it could. Um, what, now we know that there are two types of resistance, uh, qualitative and quantitative. And all that DMI chem chemistry is quantitative, meaning that it doesn't not work. It's just that you have to put more of it out at a shorter interval. So if that one had been you know, qualitative like it was with uh, the benzimidazole chemistry uh, or the digoboximide chemistry where it didn't work at all, we, we even solved this problem a lot, a lot earlier, but they always had one fungicide that they could use, just had to put more of it on and, and more often. But it looks like we're coming to the end of that line where maybe synthetic chemistries, unless they can stimulate plant defenses naturally, I mean, is that where we're going? I think so, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's where we're heading, and, and it's probably a good thing. So, you know, we're also finally starting to breed Turf grasses, you know, we, we, uh, we developed that flag stick, which is highly resistant to dollar spot, and it really has pretty good brown patch uh, control as well. So, you know, that's that's another avenue. Well, but here's, I love that avenue, and you know from being near the USGA, they've spent a fair amount of money 
developing grasses for the use less water, or, you know, uh, declaration would be another one out of the Rutgers program. And I yep. guess how much do you see guys using these newer varieties? My sense is most of these guys are just growing what they got. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And of course, the one downfall is you'd have to keep the, whether it's flagstick or declaration, you got to keep it pure. Because if the annual bluegrass comes in, the dollar spot and brown patch is going to attack it, and uh, you know you're not going to get the value out of the resistant cultivar. So, let's take another break here. We'll be back with Professor Joe Vargas of Michigan State University, who just celebrated his 50th year of service. Golf course superintendents all agree: traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. This is the TurfNet Radio Network. And I'm joined today by Professor Joe Vargas, who just received his 50-year service pin at Michigan State University. I just want to say that again because it seems like such an enormous achievement. And so... I, I guess, Joe, I, I want to shift a little bit now to l- sort of looking back on your career. And I would guess if you had to be associated with any particular aspect, at least from my view as a Northeastern kid, um, growing annual bluegrass putting greens in the metropolitan New York area you know, in my youth and through my early career, Annual bluegrass has really been there through your entire career. I mean, early on, you know, we didn't have the tools. It was dying. You said, hey, try this. It worked. Then the anthracnose stuff came back again in the early 90s when we started cutting greens much lower than we do, than we did previously. And, you know, now it seems like we've gotten to a place where you can have beautiful POA annual surface, uh, you know, annual bluegrass surfaces as we call them. I mean, places like Wingfoot uh, regrassed back to annual bluegrass. So, I mean, how would you characterize uh, sort of where we're at today with annual bluegrass and where, based on where we came from? Yeah, well, uh, I think it's become acceptable. Uh, and many people like it because, you know, it's an upright grass, so you don't have a lot of, of grain with it. Um, I, I think it's a choice. You can have bent grass or you can have annual bluegrass. It's just a lot easier to have annual bluegrass because it comes in uh, naturally. Uh, bent grass, um, and I don't know anybody that has pure creeping bent grass greens that, that doesn't hand weed them. So you can have creeping bent grass greens, but you, you're going to have to hand weed them. Even as these newer chemicals, if they ever get registered, like uh, Poet Cure, uh, this uh, Cumuleron, but even there, the, the, the pole is such a genetic diverse species that it's going to eventually become, uh, you know, resistant to whatever you put on there. So you can have it, but you need to be part of a hand weeding program. Well, and, and we're seeing this, uh, it, it, you know, about annual bluegrass in the transition zone, Joe. Uh, it's become resistant to Roundup. 
uh, that we've been using so long on the dormant warm season grasses to kill the, you know, the winter annual yeah. poa that comes in, that's becoming resistant to Roundup. So, I mean, this has always been a big controversy, right? Especially, you yeah. know, the USGA has, has sort of been both ways on it. It's in one hand, it's, it's okay. You know, you got to manage it because it's a good species and we can grow it now. Uh, and on other hands, we have a bad year and like we had this year, a lot of, you know, dead annual bluegrass from a, for a variety of different reasons, <laughs> a lot of dead bent grass to say that as well. And so, yeah. you know, I think ultimately what do you, I mean, the keys for keeping annual bluegrass in my mind is don't let it die under ice in the winter and don't let it die from anthracnose through the summer. What would you add? I wouldn't add anything. The only thing I would add to that, for all the money we've spent trying to control annual bluegrass, if we'd have spent maybe 20% of that on trying to figure out how to prevent it from breaking dormancy early in the wintertime and dying on the ice, we, I think we'd be a lot farther ahead. And I think that's where the annual bluegrass research ought to go. How are the chemicals we can put on, are, you know, are the things other than, you know, putting of solid covers on the greens and with bubble wrap or straw so that the temperature stays even throughout the the winter time. I think that's where the real research ought to go. I think we can keep it alive in the summer, but under ice, it's, it's a problem. Okay. Well, and of course, a lot of this is true for the northern climates like yours in Michigan, mine in New York, and these kinds of climates from all the way Minnesota uh, to to Maine, obviously uh, managing the ice, the way that climate is changing is it used to be something we saw once every t- eight to 10 years. Now we're seeing pretty good winter kill on a pretty regular basis. I'd say every year, every other year in some parts of these Northern regions. So I think you're, you're dead right about that. Uh, keeping it alive through the winter time. Um, but it, it does, it, you know, and again, back to bent grass, it's no free lunch with bent grass even, either. Even if you have poa annua mixed in with the bent grass, the bent grass struggled in a summer like we just had, you know, hot and wet uh, was yep. difficult for that. So do you see uh, bent grass ever getting a competitive advantage over poa? No, I, I don't see that. It doesn't have enough genetic diversity to really get a competitive advantage over poa. It's just some of the more dense bent grasses it takes a lot longer for the poa to totally take over, but which is a good thing there, you know. Mm-hmm. But again, if you're not going to hand weed one day, you know, you're going to have a few spots, and then you're going to get that particular summer, and all of a sudden it's going to be 30% poa annua, and once it's 30%, you're done. It's going to take over. So, Joe, let me let me uh, wrap up our conversation asking you about uh, my favorite place that I ever worked was with you guys there. And Fritz McMullen says I was there for five minutes. Uh, it was actually it was actually 18 months. And if Fritz ever can figure out how to run a podcast, maybe he'll hear this. Um, but but what kind of shape? Uh, you know, obviously, the teaching program has changed and the evolution of yeah. the industry from the golf boom in the 80s and 90s to the correction after the financial crisis. Uh, what kind of shape is the program in now? And what do you see for the future of the undergraduate program there and other places? Okay. Uh, obviously, the, the numbers are down, but it's student-wise here and everybody else that I talk to. But, you know, we're getting to the point now where there's a real shortage of golf course uh, assistance. You know, we got, um, I was talking to our director here, and he says he's got 20 
you know, 20 requests for assistant golf course superintendents, and we're just not putting them out. So I think it could come back in that way once the word's out there, there's jobs available, uh, you know, as an assistant with the hope you eventually become a superintendent. Uh, we got our numbers up that this year it's about 25. We were down at one time around 13, 14. But, um, so I think we're heading in the right direction there. You know, the program at Michigan State, I meant to mention that in the first part, one of the great successes of this program was because of Gordy LaFontaine. I call him Mr. I don't take no for an answer. Okay. <laughs> and he got his, he got us the research facility out there. You know, he's kept it in the limelight with the university. He's done other things for them. So they're only too happy to keep the turf program going. And, you know, you ask about what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen when Gordy's no longer around. So I got to say, Joe, I'm so glad you brought up Gordy's name. And, and it really, it, it, you know, that we didn't bring it up earlier is a bit of a is a bit of a foible on my part. And, uh, you know, I have my own history with with Gordy uh, in the little in the five minutes I was working there. You never yeah. saw anybody get into so much trouble uh, because <laughs> when he said, don't take no for an answer, that means go figure out how to do it. And if you get in trouble, I got your back. Uh, so, yeah. so I will say, let's, let's take a minute and talk about Gordy's influence, right? Cause I know that he was again, recently recognized the Michigan golf hall of fame. Um, yep. so, so what would you say now, as I know he's less involved, you know, what would you say, uh, looking back, how important that was just to s- tell the university that the industry was willing to invest? Uh, you know, I, I think the classic story is getting the turf field lab out there. You know, uh, we, we had other people on the MTF board, and they'd go and say, well, I talked to the dean or I talked to so-and-so, and they said they just can't, there's no, there's no money, we just can't help you. You know, we had the Robert Hancock money, but we're always about twenty-five or 30000 short. And Gordy, when he became president of the MTF, said, I'm going to get my, a, a lab out there. And we had a couple of meetings, and I always remember the second meeting, the executive vice president. He found a way to get to the executive vice president of the university, and we had our second meeting with the dean and the directors and all this, and and the, the executive vice president started off with. The only thing I want to know is to the dean, why that lab isn't built out there. I told you it was going to be built out there. And the dean goes, he's twenty, $25,000 short, and we don't have any money. And the vice president goes, I'll tell you what, your plant and soil science building is number eight on the list. How would you like me to move it up to number two? All of a sudden, everything changed. Okay. You know, all right, we get the money. We're going to build that turf lab out there. But, that, you know, that, that was Gordy. So not only did he get to the turf lab, he got that plant and soil science building built way before it should have been built. And that's the kind of person he was. And, and then, you know, we couldn't have any extension help. It had to go to corn. It had to go to soybeans. Next thing you know, he's in there. We got extension help, okay? You know, he just wouldn't take no for an answer. It wasn't like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved when he'd walk into a meeting, and the minute he walked in, if the person who he was going to ask looked at him when he walked in, it's like he had what he wanted the minute he walked in the room. It was just yeah. a matter of how long he was going to spend talking them out of it. 
you know, yes. you know it, it, yeah. making sure how much he could get when he walked out. And so, you know, we make light of that. But I have to say, he did it out of a sense of loyalty and commitment to the research and education that really built that turf industry in Michigan, Joe. And you have been yeah. really the cornerstone of that the, over the generations, right? I mean, you say you yeah. get honored because you've lived long enough, but the reality is you've, you've really been a steady source of, uh, you know, invaluable information for the entire industry around the world. So as we wrap up, Joe, just a big thanks to you. And, and I'm so glad we got to chat about Gordy here at the end. And I hope that I, I know that I will continue to see you uh, on the traveling circuit. Yeah, I, I I look forward to that, and thank you for having me. I, I feel honored that you would uh, you know interview me like this. So thank you. It's my pleasure, Dr. Joe Vargas at Michigan State University. I'm Frank Rossi on Frankly Speaking from the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts. When I arrived at Michigan State University in 1991, a fresh new PhD from Cornell, I don't think I completely realized what was about to happen to me. I was embraced by my esteemed colleagues such as Paul Rieke and Bruce Branham, Trey Rogers and Jim Crum, and when it was time to work with the industry, Dr. Vargas was who I asked. His legacy of research, students, and supportive superintendents in need collectively paint a picture of a man devoted to service and at the same time not afraid to challenge the status quo. We did not get to speak about his passion for Elvis Presley the King. Oddly enough, Dr. Vargas is equal to the King for all of us in turf. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Russell.